I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In his last year as director of America's National Mental Health Institute, Thomas Insel was giving a talk to a room full of people. As he clicked through his PowerPoint presentation, illustrating the Institute's research successes, he noticed a man at the back growing increasingly frustrated. You really don't get it, the man said. My 23-year-old son has schizophrenia. He's been hospitalised five times, made three suicide attempts, and now he's homeless. Our house is on fire, and you're talking about the chemistry of the paint. What are you doing to put out this fire? Dr. Insel remembers that he was defensive at first, but not long after, he realised the audience member was right. There is a huge gap between what is known about mental health and what's done to help millions of Americans who are suffering, and that pattern is reproduced in many other societies around the world. Dr. Insel took up the challenge. He left his job to investigate what was broken and how we might start fixing it. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, how can mental health care crises be solved? My guest is the psychiatrist and neuroscientist Thomas Insel, who led the National Institute of Mental Health from 2002 to 2015. There he presided over a budget of billions. The Institute is the largest funder of mental health research in the world, and his 13-year stint earned him the nickname The Nation's Psychiatrist. Since leaving the post, he's joined the startups of Silicon Valley and with his daughter founded a community platform. It offers support and therapy online. This year, he published a book, Healing, which explores solutions for mental health care in America. Thomas Insel, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've worked in mental health care now for over four decades. So... I wondered how your own approach and study had changed in that time, if you could put your finger on it. One thing that's kind of interesting about mental health with respect to other areas of medicine is that things haven't changed so much. We have more medications and we have more psychological treatments than we did when I started, but I wouldn't say the outcomes are much better. That's very much the case if we were talking about heart disease or infectious diseases or cancer, that over four decades, we've made enormous progress. In mental health, we have made progress on the science. We know much more than we did four decades ago. But paradoxically, in this area, the science hasn't actually delivered for public health. So we don't see reductions in disability or reductions in death the way one might have hoped. Can we just clarify our terms a little bit around this? Because it's an area of many different terminologies. 
I think the National Institute of Mental Health in the US estimates one in five Americans live with a mental illness. You estimate one in 20 have a serious mental illness. Can you explain these distinctions? And do they mean the same as they meant perhaps when you started out or 20 years ago? It's important to get our terms right, because here the words really do matter. And we use different ways of talking about this. It's one of the real challenges in this field. Unlike most of medicine, people even argue about whether these are illnesses at all. So let's clarify. There are disorders that people develop that have actual symptoms, but maybe don't cause much disability. And and that's where that one in five number comes from. It can include phobias of various sorts or a tendency to hoard, whatever. About one in 20, I think that is a reasonably good number for the US, develop something that's actually disabling. They're unable to work. They're unable to take care of a family. They're unable to actually prosper in any of the usual ways. And we call that serious mental illness disorders, which go by many names, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, sometimes severe depression, even uh, severe eating disorders, uh, which can be deadly. Those serious mental illnesses are, in fact, a major source of death and disability, not just in the US, but around the world. Have they changed over the last four decades? Not so much. It's the case that there is more serious mental illness amongst young people today than there would have been 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Some of that may be an effect of COVID, but a lot of that was happening even before the pandemic. But fundamentally, these are disorders that have been with us forever and they're universal. The crisis that we're in today is not due to a surge in the prevalence. It's really due to the failure of care. If we look to the bigger historical picture here, something you cite that leapt out at me that you quote President John F. Kennedy in your book, Healing, and he said in 1963 that it would need the full resources of government to fight against mental illness. Well, for various reasons that didn't happen. You estimate today 20 million Americans are living with serious mental illness. But I suppose I'm still interested in what evidence we have for worsening mental illness and what you think that is down to, what is down to the system and what is down to the way that we look at mental illness. Absolutely. His comment in 1963 was that people with mental illness should no longer be alien to our affections. And by that, he meant kept in these mental asylums that were state hospitals for long term and not having a life in the community. And so his idea was to create community mental health supports. When I got into the field in 1970s, we had that. And people with mental illness were increasingly given a chance to have a life in the community. If one looks today, and I'm going to speak and for, for the United States because it's probably most egregious here. But what we've seen is with the loss of the public institutions for mental health care, that the default mental health care institutions are the criminal justice system. So today there are roughly 350,000 people with serious mental illness in a jail or prison and about 35,000 in a public mental hospital on any given day. That's what I mean by a crisis. So when I say things are worse, 
it's not because there are 10 times more people with mental illness. It's because we have gone from a world in which we saw these as health problems to a world in which people with serious mental illness find that they are treated as criminals. They're basically in the criminal justice system or they're homeless. That's outrageous. We would not do that for people with severe diabetes or severe cardiovascular disease. I don't understand how that's acceptable for people who have serious mental illness. You say if America were a more equitable, compassionate, inclusive society, mental illness rates would improve. That's very hard to gainsay. I mean, it's well-based, but it's also common sense. And I, I wonder then which countries you feel get the balance right. And my challenge to you would be, if I were to look to the Nordic countries, very naughtily sometimes on this show, I call them the goody-goody Scandies. A lot of policymakers and particularly Americans, shall we say, of, of liberal bent tend to like that kind of example. They have great variation in their successes and they also have, in some countries, a high suicidality. So I guess I'm trying to suggest this might not be as much of an America-facing problem as, as you suggest. I get that. There is no... There's probably no paradise when you're looking for countries and what they do. But just to put a point on this, the, the suicide rate, for instance, has gone up about 30% since 2000 in the United States. It's actually gone down in much of Europe in that same period of time. And to be clear, the rate of drug overdoses, what we call here in the in the States, we call these deaths of despair. So deaths due to suicide, drug overdose, and alcohol-related deaths has gone up about threefold since 2005, 2006. I mean, this is, these are not small changes. That has not happened. In fact, deaths of despair are coming down in most of Europe and most demographics within Europe. So I do want to make the case that I think the US is exceptional, but not in a good way. We do know that there is shortage of provision. I think you quote a former Massachusetts mental health commissioner saying it's easy to get your kid into the Harvard Medical School than to find a psychiatric bed in a state hospital. The answer is clearly a lot of investment. And yet politics of various hues has not been able to address that. So what do you think would move the needle? Ah, well, thank you for asking, because I'm sitting here in California, where we have, I think, made some pretty big bets on how to do this. You need to focus on health and not just health care. Imagine writing a prescription for housing or a prescription for food or a prescription for social support. Uh, that doesn't happen in the healthcare system as we know it today. So we've recently revised the way we handle our Medicaid dollars in this state to deal with serious mental illness in a very different way, in a way that does provide, as we say, no wrong door and whole person care. We're beginning to make a massive investment, $4.4 billion in youth and children's behavioral health, making schools the ground zero for educating kids, giving them mental health services, providing an opportunity for them to get the skills they need so that they can cope better making sure that pediatricians have access to specialists and that uh, families have a way to navigate what has been a very difficult system to maneuver if they need care for somebody in the family. 
So we can do this. We absolutely can do this. We're doing it here in California. I think what we're, we're hoping is that will set the model for the rest of the US and potentially beyond. And as well as being your field of research and work, you've had your own experiences at close hand of mental illnesses. Tell me about the way that that has affected the way you go about your professional life. Yeah, I think eventually every family deals with this. In my case, it was two or three decades ago, discovering that my teenage daughter uh, developed an eating disorder, anorexia nervosa. And I tell the story in the book because what was really stunning for me was that being an expert in the field, I didn't see it. You know, there used to be an old expression that the cobbler's kids never have nice shoes. My mind went exactly to that. It's so interesting how even uh, in an area that you think you know really well, it's easy to miss because you tend to see your kids through uh, a very, generally, for least for me, a very positive lens. It was hard for me to imagine that they weren't perfect in what they did and how they did it. That was a piece of it. I think the second piece for me was realizing once I understood that there was a problem that even as an expert and a professional, it wasn't so easy to get good care. And I hadn't been quite aware of what a family's up against when they have to navigate a care system that doesn't actually work very well. Because the real tragedy here isn't that we don't have treatments. We do have treatments, but the treatments aren't getting to people in the way that help them recover. You also mentioned your son having ADHD. That's certainly not a mental illness in the same sense, but it's something that a lot of parents find themselves dealing with. And the reaction, and I know this certainly, you know, when it's happened in my family, is you've always got, not only, but sometimes a generational divide saying, what is this thing? Like, this seems to be quite new. I mean, I watched this with my own son, but again, it was so difficult for me, even as a psychiatrist, to accept the fact that his hyperactivity, his lack of ability to ever finish anything, his inability to Uh, attend in school, that that was a problem that A, was due to some funny wiring that he had, and B, was treatable. And I actually found it very difficult to accept the idea that we were going to give medication to our our perfect nine-year-old, because I didn't want to in any way alter the chemistry of his brain. After we gave it to him, uh, it was sort of stunning to watch within a matter of minutes, literally minutes, him transformed to somebody who actually was no longer whirling around continually, but able to sit still and play and enjoy something. My wife and I were just looking at each other thinking, wow, who knew? About uh, a month later, we asked him about the medication and whether it was helping. And he said, Oh no, it's 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 not helping at all. But you know, it's it's making everybody else different. Everybody else is much nicer to me. And I thought that was for us a kind of an epiphany that we realized that he didn't have to put up with the kind of attentional problems and the chaos and just that that driving force that was going on, um, that he could grow up without that and would be able to learn and prosper and that, in fact, has been exactly the case. Just before we move on to wider context, I'd be very surprised if we, I didn't get uh, notes from listeners to the show saying, ah, that's all possibly true, but it's easier to get onto meds than it is 
to get off them. And there is also, as you know, a school of thought at the moment, this is very contested uh, on both sides, really, about the, the scholarship that says that there is an over-reliance on prescribing for young people. Your, your thoughts on that? First, I think it is true that there is both over-prescribing and under-prescribing. There are at least four different kinds of interventions for this thing we call mental disorders. So the medicines are ones that people know. They're antipsychotics, antidepressants, drugs for anxiety, drugs for sleep, drugs for attention problems. And the evidence is quite clear that they're effective, they're safe, they've been approved by regulators, and they're overused and overmarketed. No question about that. Okay. <laughs> but that's not to say that they're not useful when they're used in the right way. And they do save lives. The psychological treatments, there are many. I think the World Health Organization lists 10 evidence-based treatments that should be in every health system. And once again, they are both overutilized and underutilized. There's an awful lot of psychotherapy going on that's not helpful. And there's a lot of very effective skill-building psychological treatments that are under-implemented, underused. The neuromodulatory treatments are like TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, using magnetic stimulation to sort of activate particular circuits within the brain by activating the scalp or activating the cortex. There's evidence that that sometimes is helpful for people who haven't responded to anything else, particularly for depression. And the last group are the, I'll call them rehabilitative supports, all the things that we used to do, we know are incredibly effective to help people recover. Supported employment, housing assistance, allowing people to have family psychoeducation so families become part of the solution. All of that stuff is incredibly important, largely underpaid for and often neglected. So all four of those buckets make up the treatments. It's not just Prozac. Uh, There's a lot to think about here and a lot of great evidence from the science that suggests that all four of them are effective and are best when used together. When we talk about expanding innovation in in terms of treating mental disorders. And I'm thinking here about innovations. We've written about them in The Economist as elsewhere in the use of psychedelic drugs with psychotherapy to treat certain disorders from depression, extreme depression to PTSD or using the psychedelic substance found in magic mushrooms as part of a treatment. Do you understand why, also given that you've been around a few decades in this field and that there have been Directions have been taken that have turned out not to be right. And people are perhaps wary of innovation in this field until it's very proven. It's a bit of a catch-22 because then how do you experiment and roll out new treatments when people might say, well, that went a bit wrong in the 60s or 70s? Of course. And I must say, this is a field that is littered with bad ideas. I mean, uh, there was a long period where we blamed families for mental illness. There was a long period where we didn't think these were real illnesses and that we just thought people should be allowed to stay as psychotic as they wanted to be. And that didn't work out so well. So it makes you humble and you have to be humble here. These are really complicated problems. They're not gonna bend to a simple singular solution. And we're gonna have to get very smart about how we understand them and how we approach them, how we help people and families who are struggling. When you were director of the National Institute of Mental Health, you faced some criticism for shifting 
the focus of the Institute to neuroscience, shrinking its budget for clinical research into how well psychotherapies worked as treatments. You were obviously trying to make choices and you have to make choices about where you allocate resources. But looking back, do you think it was fair criticism and and do you have any regrets? Well, I don't think the criticism was quite fair. I think we did some spectacular investments in new treatments, for instance, in developing comprehensive care for the first episode of psychosis. And that's a project that was quickly implemented is now in 240 clinics across the US, across all 50 states. But my sense was that in 2002, 2003, 2004, that era when I started, we had really unprecedented traction for neuroscience and genomics. And it would have been egregious not to actually build on that to try to come up with new diagnostics and new treatments. For me, though, the bigger question isn't so much the research budget and how the research money is being spent. It's it's what we do with the science that we already have. And what I find most disturbing is that we often know what works and it's not what we do. That what we're doing in practice doesn't really pay attention to all of that research that NIMH and other research agencies have been able to generate. That's really, I think, where I'm putting my focus these days is to make sure that we take a look at what we know works and we make sure that that's what we do. And too often, that's not the case. Tell me a bit more about the role of technology. You left the National Institute of Mental Health in 2015. You've been working in Silicon Valley with Google Life Sciences. Uh, You eventually left and launched your your own startup with your daughter called Humanist. And it's a platform which aims to expand access to quality mental health care, therapy, group support, delivered online. Tell me about the potential about that and also the challenges. In healthcare, we like to be the caretakers, the providers. We like to be all powerful. We're the experts and we want to be the center of everything that happens. But if you step back and you begin to empower people to help each other, it's kind of remarkable what happens. And what we've learned at Humanest, particularly working with young people, we work a lot with university students, is that what benefits them the most is being able to get engaged online to create a community in which they're able to help each other solve problems and play to their strengths. It's quite remarkable. And it's not what we do in the healthcare system. So Humanist is hoping to disrupt that by providing what I think is a less expensive but actually more effective way for young people to recover. So when you say it has all the promise that I've covered in something like MOOCs in education or in other healthcare innovations that say, hey, here we come, we are the disruptors. Obviously, the price of delivery is much lower because you don't have to go and have an individual appointment somewhere. It's more convenient in a sense at both ends. But still, some people will have doubts about the quality of the experience. How would you reassure me that accessing help through an online appointment or a wearable. You see, oh, you sound like you don't need to, if you like, my doubt doesn't even really land with you, but I do have it. Sorry, got to say it. I love that doubt. It's exactly the right question. I've been writing about that a lot recently. It's what I've been focused on because I think a lot of the innovation we've seen in the last two or three years, and it's been massive, $5.1 billion in venture money going into innovations and in behavioral health 
digital mental health companies, startups in the last, just in the last year. Think about that for a moment, Anne. That, that's 5.1 billion. The NIMH budget in total is under 2 billion. So this is a lot of investment. But when I look at it, a lot of it is about access, It's which is a good thing. It's providing more convenient care through some kind of a digital platform. Maybe it's Zoom like, or some kind of an app. But is it improving quality? That's the question, because unless you improve quality, you don't improve outcomes. The good news is that we can begin to measure with online care in a smart way. And there are companies, and Humanest is only one, but there are many companies that are beginning to do this and using that feedback to improve quality and to get better outcomes. We're not doing that in brick and mortar care there's this term called measurement-based care. Less than 20% of providers in the world of brick and mortar before this transformation to digital, less than 20% were measuring anything. And so they weren't learning. They weren't getting better. They weren't really improving quality in that way. We can do that uh, with innovation. We can do that with digital care. I'm not saying that we are doing it yet, but that has to be the next chapter in the way that technology improves mental health care, it has to improve outcomes. We've talked a bit about where we are and your frustrations and what you want to change and the, the role of technology and innovation. You look back over 40 years, let's imagine we get you back, you'll be brilliantly preserved, your mental and physical health will be wonderful in 40 years' time. What do you think we'd have seen? What would have happened? You know, if you'd asked me that 40 years ago, I would have said we'd be so much better off than we were in 1982. We would have new treatments, new diagnostics, new technologies, all of that. And we actually do have new treatments, but the outcomes aren't any better. And so what I hope for and what I really am working for now full-time is that going forward, that the changes 40 years from now are not so much in the tools, but in the outcomes, that we aren't at that point incarcerating people because they have a brain disorder, that we aren't allowing them to die on the streets, or as some people say, to die with their rights on in the United States, but that we have figured out a way to ensure that people who could and should benefit from treatment are getting the care that allow them to have a full and dignified life. And I think that's the big the big challenge in front of us. It's not really coming up with some new molecular target for the next generation of antidepressants. It's not even you know, creating safer psychedelics, so that might be really wonderful, but it's going to be in making sure that people who have become our untouchables, people with serious mental illness who are on the very fringe of our society, living mostly in homeless shelters and jails and prisons, that they are given a chance to have a real life. That should be the most important problem that we try to solve in the mental health field in the next couple of decades. And it's solvable. We can absolutely do this if we commit to it. Dr. Thomas Insel, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. And we'd love to know what you think. What's your own or your family's experience of treatment for mental health disorders? Write to us at podcast at or you can tweet us at The Economist. 
This week, The Economist has investigated the boom in America's telehealth sector. In many ways, it's widening access to mental health treatments, but some do fear that the surge in prescriptions of stimulant drugs, especially for ADHD, is a concern. You can read that fascinating piece and our conclusions on our website. And if you're not an Economist subscriber already, why not sign up today? We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers are Alicia Burrell, Julia Johnson and Charlotte Pritchard. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.